This is Nick Diner, CEO of Moliere, and you are listening to the Water Values Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. By Intera, Innovation and Stewardship for a Sustainable Tomorrow. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. By 120 Water, New Rules Need New Tools. By 1898 & Co., Possibilities Powered by Experience. And by Woodard & Curran, High-Quality Consulting Engineering, Science, and Operations Services. This is Session 250. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Yes, this is a milestone episode. We've hit 250 episodes and do we ever have a phenomenal show for you today to celebrate episode 250. We started off 2024 with a great interview with Seth Johnstone of 1898 & Co. where Seth offered a fresh take on digital transformation and today... We shall build on that strong and solid foundation with just an amazing interview with my old friend, Art Umble, the director of the Stantec Institute for Applied Science, Technology, and Policy. And boy, does Art do a great job of explaining and exploring the key megatrends impacting water. You're really going to enjoy this episode, and Art will get you thinking differently about water issues. It is a fitting episode to fill slot 250. Well, as you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show, and we have some fantastic sponsors for 2024. Those sponsors include Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black and Veatch, 120 Water, 1898 and Co., and Woodard and Curran. And that is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have affirmatively decided to support water industry thought leadership and education through the sponsorship. And I'd like to thank you all. And you, for you, the listener, I'd like for you to do me a favor, if you would, please, if you work for or with any of those sponsor firms, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. You'd be surprised how far that simple little note of thanks will go. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education, thought leadership, hey, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. It'd be greatly appreciated and, of course, helps others find out about the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast as well. That'd be really appreciated. Well, now it's time for the main event, our interview with Art Umble. So let's get that water flowing. Well, my old friend, Art Umble, thank you so much for coming on. How are you today, Art? Dave, it's such a pleasure to to hear you again and to be with <laughs> you. And just want to congratulate you on these great uh, podcasts that you've been developing over the years. These have been really impactful for the industry. It's great to see you yeah. again. Well, thank you so much, Art. It just it feels like yesterday we were we were climbing Mount Evans out there in Colorado. And uh, time, time flies because uh, that was kind of right at the uh, right around the time the podcast was born when we were doing that. That's right. It was. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> so, uh, Art, we obviously have a long history, uh, but for the 
for the benefit of the listener, could you please give us a little on your background and how you even came to the water sector and, and landed in the position you're in? Sure, Dave. So my academic background um, did a PhD in the treatment of wastewater regarding the removal of nutrients from wastewater biologically. I did that at the University of Notre Dame. And that's how I came into Indiana. And then following that, um, which is where you and I became acquainted, Dave, I took on the management of a water and wastewater utility in the city of Elkhart, Indiana, which is the northern portion of Indiana there. And in that role, I became very engaged in the broader questions about water and water environment. So became involved in a lot of national and international forums and roles with respect to the understanding of how utilities at utility scale uh, need to address the questions of water. And then from that is when I did that for about a decade, Dave, and then moved into the consulting industry, um, primarily with respect to the treatment of wastewater from a planning and design and implementation perspective, and have been doing that uh, probably now for the last nearly 20 years. And it's uh, recently then beginning more getting back into the old core of research and the role that research plays in bringing issues to uh, the actual practical nature of utility management and utility operations. Great, Arts. I, I know that you've got an exciting position now. So could you could you kind of let us know what what exactly you're up to these days? Yes, the institute that I referenced is something that we developed within our company several years ago. And the idea was, if we're going to be a global company, we need to be better understanding and have better information about the global trends driving economies of all sorts. And that is often very much touched by water in every area of the economy. And so many of the mega trends that we're experiencing globally due to urbanization, due to transboundary water networks, due to water quality, we understand things in a way that's driving the industry in certain ways. And if we're going to be a sustainable uh, user and consumer of water into the future, uh, we need to understand how these factors play together. And so our research institute is designed to look at where the gaps are in our knowledge with respect to how do we consult to the industry? How do we prepare plans that are better for designs that are sustainable into the future around water. And that, of course, relates technology. It has a big influence on policy. And so we try and bring those together from an understanding of how these megatrends scale right down to the utility level and influence the decisions primarily around risk that uh, utility managers and leaders in the utility industry need to be aware of and affect their decision-making process now that will affect, of course, years into the future. So that's that's the focus of our institute. We Everything we do is published, and we do that in the peer-reviewed journals as much as we can, as well as non-peer-reviewed. Got it. So, Art, I, I think it's 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 awesome that we have someone with your knowledge base and and all those years down in the trenches now working on strategy uh, and visioning things because as uh, as we kind of talked about a little earlier um you know if if you if you go to Sun Tzu's art of war 
uh, tactics without strategy is the noise before the defeat, right? And so you got to you got to have strategy before you jump into into the tactics of you know the nitty gritty you know building block pieces. So I I, I really want to get your take on kind of what those mega trends you referenced earlier are. So could you kind of run down big picture what those mega trends are? Sure. And I would begin by saying in the world of water, from the global perspective, when we talk about how do we have a sustainable availability of usable water into the future as our populations grow and as our urban centers grow and so forth, there are several key elements that we need to understand better. And we can get into the details of these if you'd like, Dave, but I would begin by painting a picture of water stress from a global perspective, from a national perspective, from a regional and local perspective. There's a very important necessity to understand what global water stress means. So that's the first Thing. I think, secondly, we need to have a much better understanding of the influence that urbanization currently is having on water and the potential that it will have moving into the next several decades as we rapidly grow our urban centers globally. And then the influence of these things from this changing climate that we experience today and will continue to experience into the future. And then the third factor, I think that's really, really critical that's driving the mega trends in water sustainability is the use of water for an agricultural benefit. And that obviously has to do with how do we feed the world? And as our population grows and continues to need more and more of a sustainable nutrition, water plays a more and more important role in that. And of course, climate has a major influence on that. And in many of these areas of influence, these trends, there are nexus that occurs, which basically means there are interacting forces that one affects the other. This is not a zero-sum game. And so what we have to better understand as an industry, and then secondly, as political bodies around the world, is how these factors technically interface and interact. And I think as a personally consultant in this field, we as consultants, we as water professionals need to know so much more about how these gaps can be filled, whether they are technology solutions, whether they are policy solutions, whether they are both, and what are the economic implications of that globally. We've seen that just last week, Dave, with the whole influence of COP28 that took place. Um, and so this is why I believe that we have to take a step back and get to your point about strategy on this and less on the tactics yet, because there's so much about these gaps that we, in our knowledge that we need to fill in order to complete a better understanding of the strategy of sustainability moving forward. Then we can put the tactics together on that. And that's happening in some areas and in other areas, it's not happening at all. So this is the role I think that we as water professionals need to pay attention to. Yeah, that, that is just really important stuff. I hope the, the, you may want to rewind that and re-listen to Art's answer there. Uh, but I would like to dive into each of those uh, those megatrends <clears throat> you identified. And on that first one, on water stress, you identified three different levels, right? Global, national, and regional. Um, 
Can you can you break each of those down? And I was very interested in your comments about understanding global water stress and what that means. So let let's start with the with global water stress and yeah, sure. And so what we have traditionally thought of with respect to water stress, Dave, from a global perspective is we tend to think of it in the terms of water scarcity. And so the UN, for example, for many years has published information about the availability of water in a particular region or in a particular country or in a particular local level divided by the amount of water that's being consumed in those geographic scales. And from that ratio, whether that ratio is greater than one, meaning there's more water available than they're consuming, or less than one, meaning they're consuming a lot more than is available, that then gives a a reflection of this term stress. And just to give you an example, globally, the UN considers a per capita total water availability of about 1,700 cubic meters per person per year would be considered a threshold of stress. Anything less than that begins to create stress on an individual level. When you take that now to a lower scale from the global scarcity question down to more of a national and even a local regional scale, There's another element that really plays big into stress that really changes this ratio, and that is the socioeconomic influence plays on water. And this has to do, Dave, with the availability of adequate infrastructure that is able and capable of moving available water to those who have the need. And this tends to really change the picture at these local scales because infrastructure in many places is either non-existent or it's woefully inadequate to to move the water necessarily to where the needs are. And so this then begins to show that just because uh, you may be in an area where there's plenty of water available, say in a local city, and yet the infrastructure is so poor or it's deteriorated so much or it is non-existent that we cannot even get that available water to those in need. And a good example of this, surprisingly enough, right here in our own country would be Flint, Michigan, for example, or Jackson, Mississippi, where these show up very, very pronounced uh, elements of socioeconomic influence that affects the water stress. And so those are areas where water is available, but yet the water stress ratio is well above one and indicates that, you know, there's another part here that we've often been neglecting at these smaller scales. You go to a country like the middle, those in the Middle East, and you look at Dubai, for example, which is where COP28 just was, and you find that there, though it is a very water scarce region in terms of the availability of water, they have the economic, socioeconomic power to be able to develop technological solutions, desalination, for example, to provide all the water and infrastructure they need for their local citizens. That's obviously not the case for other countries in that part of the world. And so this is what we're now realizing that the global water stress question is when it's scaled down, is no longer just about the availability of water and the scarcity that it can create. 
And it's now the influence of the availability of adequate infrastructure. When you put on top of that, this question of climate and that changing climate, which influences the degree of available water, now we have a nexus that's even more challenging to face, particularly at the local and regional levels than ever before. Yeah. And as you, as you were describing the, the stress levels and the, the issues around, uh, particularly regional uh, water stress. I mean, is, is water stress, is that really uh, what, you know, how do you see the political element playing in that? Because if, if the folks that hold the, the purse strings for Flint and for Jackson, Mississippi had invested appropriately, we may not, they may not be those examples that they, they turned out to be. That's exactly right, David. And I would argue that there's another S in the equation here for water stress, where we talk about scarcity and socioeconomics. And this then is also about water security. And this is the political question that you're raising, which is a very appropriate one, because water security has to do with the right of an individual to receive adequate supply at an adequate quality and have equitable access to that quality across the board. And so the policy side of water stress now begins to play very much at the political level. And it isn't until we recognize, in my view, that the political pressures can actually create a feedback loop back onto the water stress in general that ultimately then refuses the ability of those who have ac- should have access to the water are equitably kept away from it. And I think we have the ability as a democratic society to be able to make appropriate political decisions to ensure that the equitable distribution of an adequate, viable, life-giving resource like water is available to all. And so, yes, water stress is about scarcity. No one denies that. And climate change is having an influence on that. And we can talk about that later. But it also then has to do with the socioeconomic pressures and these issues around security for water, which are political and policy questions. These cannot be ignored. Unfortunately, I think in many cases, we tend to ignore them for a variety of reasons, but um, we cannot uh, we cannot look aside to these. Absolutely. I, I agree with your, your position wholeheartedly, Art. Uh, thanks. Thanks for uh, illuminating that point. Uh, let's you know, let's before we spend all our time on on water stress, let's move on to that second megatrend in global urbanization. Um, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Uh, uh, you know, as as the world urbanizes, and you know, particularly in a lot of de- let's just say developed economies, the birth rate is is not gr- it's not growing, and so the, there's there's a lot of stagnation in growing economies or in developed economies. And then you hear like the future population boom is going to be in Africa. Uh, so I'm, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are on the, the issues surrounding global urbanization and how this megatrend impacts the way we should think about water. Yeah, it's a great question, Dave. And it is very pertinent. I think for us to spend time as an industry 
becoming better informed about the global urbanization challenge. And just to give you a rough perspective here, when you think back to 1950, Dave, globally, there were only eight cities that had populations or residents greater than 5 million people. In 2000, that number had increased to 34 cities. And the projection actually back in 2015, there were more than 50. And there's going to be more than that now by 2050, as we know. And basically, the urban population in 20, in 1950 was about 0.8 billion people living in urban areas. By 2015, that number had increased to 6.7 billion, which makes up 74% of, of the population at that time. So you can imagine this, there's this acceleration of migration from areas outside urban centers into urban centers. So this creates a tremendous amount of demand on the water sector, particularly we can, you know, often people talk about the energy challenge that that brings, but that's another question. I want to focus just on the water piece here. What we're learning is that just in 2016, a b- roughly a little less than 1 billion people living in cities globally were facing scarcity situations of water. And the dominance of that get to your point about the geographies in the developing areas of East Africa, primarily sub-Saharan Africa uh, and in Eurasia. In 2050, we are expecting, based on these population growth projections that you referenced, little more than 2 billion persons living in urban centers that will be facing water scarcity. And when you add the infrastructure points that we were talking about previously, the water stress ratios in these areas is well above one by that time. One other perspective I would give is this. Currently, the UN classifies global urban areas in two ways. The first way is what they call large cities. And these are cities that are 1 million persons and greater. And there are 526 of those today. Secondly, the UN identifies mega cities, which are cities with populations greater than 10 million. And today there are 30 of those globally. When you think about this question of water scarcity that I mentioned a moment ago, of the large cities, that's those 526, currently today, 37% of those lie in water-scarce regions of the world. So this is in Africa, this is in the Middle East, this is in areas of Eurasia, and it's also, interestingly enough, as you can imagine, many areas of the United States, i.e. the Southwest, for example. Of the 30 mega cities that I mentioned, Nine of those currently reside in scarce water regions. And very sadly, two of those cities of the mega cities, specifically Delhi in India and Lahore in Pakistan, have no water solutions available to them today. And so when you think about the challenge that they have politically in some of these areas to keep up the infrastructure with the growing and emerging populations that they're burgeoning at their seams with, 
they have no solutions from a technological perspective to increase the supply to support those populations. So the question is, what is the answer for these areas? And your question or your point about how do you bring solutions to these areas of scarcity already that are already well above the stress ratio of one, where they may not have the economic means to put in things like desalination, like I mentioned earlier, the real challenge to them is how do we reduce the demand? And so these are policy and political questions. So, for example, do I limit the population growth into some of these cities? How do I curtail the rapid rate of urbanization? What do we do about water conservation, for example? Can we help persons individually reduce the daily water consumption? Can we help agriculture reduce the consumption of water on an annual and a daily and a seasonal basis? What can we do about industry? But you know, Dave, I think one of the biggest challenges facing urban centers today, and we in America are not immune to this, and that is the, the amount of water that we lose on a daily basis due to the inadequacy of water distribution infrastructure, the amount of water that we leak out of our systems. The numbers on that are just staggering to me. And if you think about it in terms of the global point, uh, right now we estimate about 48 billion cubic meters a year are lost in inadequate distribution systems. And even here in the United States, when we have utilities where the water loss rate, some call it unaccounted for water, reaches 15, 18, 20 percent of the water that's delivered, then we would have to say even here in our own country where we consider ourselves well advanced and we are, and the same with Europe and the UK and Australia and so forth, we all are challenged with this particular challenge of our distribution systems and losses. So these contribute to policy and political decisions about where we spend our money on infrastructure and how we repair our infrastructure. I think the other thing on the agricultural side is that we have to reduce the demand by developing more sustainable methods of irrigation. We can talk about that later if you wish, but there are, right now we are dramatically globally upside down in terms of the amount of irrigation that we are applying for crop requirements that are over and above what the groundwaters are being replenished with. We call that unsustainable irrigation. And we're above that by about 31% right now globally. And so how do we change the technologies, number one, which also have policy implications for those who are in the agricultural industry in terms of the water that's available to them, how they use that appropriately. What about subsidies on yields for crops? Because we can talk about the influence that climate is currently having on crop yield and how do we shore up or subsidize the agricultural industry from that perspective. I think these are things that are putting tremendous amount of pressures on individuals, number one, and cities at much smaller levels and scales, number two. And as a result of the agricultural industry, you know, many of these things are changing, such as moving populations, migrating to where? To the cities. And so this is, uh, as you can see, sort of its own feedback loop in its own way. I, I art 
very well said. I think uh, the the other thing as you were speaking is is I think there's a there's kind of the other side of the coin is what happens to the areas that are losing population but still need services uh, in those kind of you know, shrinking uh, areas. And I I know in for example in Indiana there's a, a number of small rural counties that are losing population, but those the, the remaining residents still need services and and they're experiencing you know, infrastructure needs that, that their, their population simply can't, can't sustain and afford. Uh, so I think there's, there's another side of the coin to this whole urbanization problem as well. That's really well said, Dave, and you're absolutely right. The, uh, the pressures on the smaller utility delivery service companies and utilities is dramatically increasing for that very reason that you described, because we're having now to spread the costs, which are going up over smaller and smaller um, rate paying bases, right? And so does that mean we move into more subsidized kinds of systems to be able to provide that security of these resources that we talked about earlier. It's a very complicated political question. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it's it's really interesting to think about because, you know, you can go all the way back into times when we had like the Dust Bowl, for example, and these migrations of people moving out of these areas and what happened to those areas, you know, in terms of their deterioration and in some cases, complete loss of service. And so, I think we are wise to be paying attention to all these scales and recognizing, as you point out, the the two sides of these coins that are obviously present, and we cannot ignore one for the benefit of the other and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, so you set up, you, you made a great segue to talking about the agricultural productivity megatrend. And uh, I, I, I whiffed on that curveball and, uh, uh, so let's hit it now. Let's let's get into the agricultural productivity megatrend, and I'd like to to dig into to, to that a little more and hear hear your thoughts on what that means for this for the sector. Yeah, it's a it's a complicated question because there's a lot of elements of water's distribution and use in the agricultural sector. And I think when we think of it in terms when we think of agriculture, I think we often Think of it in terms of the crop productivity, right? And so productivity is a result of a variety of factors, water, of course, being a major one. And when I think of agriculture, Dave, I think of two elements of water. One is water that we call blue water source, which is the water that is in our surface water bodies and our streams and our creeks and in our aquifers that supply irrigation loads to uh, agricultural sectors. That's one. And then above the blue water is this area that we call green water, which is essentially the top several meters of the soil that absorbs moisture from rainfall and runoff and draws water up from the aquifers, which is what provides the water source for crop requirements. Currently today, 65% of all crop growth comes from the green water area that I mentioned. And over time, as climate begins to have more and more of an influence, and what is that influence? Well, the influence is longer periods of drought. And in some cases, often cases, those periods of drought also overlap with growing seasons of the agricultural 
sector. So it affects the planting. It affects the harvest times. And the reason is because climate is affecting the degree of evapotranspiration of this green water source, creating what we call green water scarcity. And the more green water scarcity becomes up front and center, the more we're seeing a reduction or an impact, which is reduction in the crop yield itself. And a very brief example on this would be right here in my own backyard in the South Platte River Basin for northeastern Colorado, which, by the way, provides about 75% of all the agricultural productivity for the state of Colorado. The water that comes from our mountain source in the front range here flows from about 4,300 meters down to the plains level, which is in the 800 meter range. So you can see this dramatic change in topography across. That changes the way in which we irrigate crops. So in the upper regions, we irrigate most of our agricultural lands there using flood irrigation, where it's all runoff from the snow. We just open a gate from the stream and we let that water flood uh, the stream, uh, flood the fields where we're growing. Down in the lower plains, however, closer up to the Nebraska line, all of that is irrigated by pumping from the groundwater. And so the importance of this relationship between the green water source and the blue water sources, specifically in these areas where we're doing unsustainable irrigation rates, has an influence on the uh, productivity of the crops. So as climate change begins to take over, and it's already beginning here in Colorado, as we're seeing more and more periods of drier time in the growing seasons, what that means is that we, in order to sustain the reliability of our yields, we're having to increase the rates of irrigation. And so the increased rates of irrigation coupled with these flood irrigations in the upper elevations is reducing, is creating a more unsustainable long-term reliability of our groundwater source. And this is not just unique to northeastern Colorado. We're seeing this in many areas across the globe where the unsustainable amount of agriculture is the only option that agriculturalists have to keeping up with the demand for the yield of the crops of which they're growing in order to supply the markets by which they're committed to. And I mentioned earlier that, you know, we're currently globally kind of upside down here with the amount of irrigation that is occurring unsustainably versus the amount that we should be able to do sustainably with the groundwater that's available. Climate is having a huge impact on this, Dave. And just as an example, here in this northeastern Colorado basin that I was referring to in the South Platte River Basin, the agricultural yield is projected to decline by anywhere from 30 to 60% in yields by the end of this century due to the changes in climate. If we are going to continue to provide 75% of the productivity of Colorado, we're going to have to find completely different means by which to provide sustainable water sourcing for that crop yield. And we are not unique, as I mentioned. There are areas in western Kansas. There are areas in the southwestern United States. California Central Basin is a huge challenge for them due to the quickly that their aquifers are being drawn down, the lengthening of the drought seasons, particularly in the growing seasons. And this is just in the United States. When you take this to sub-Saharan Africa, you take it to India, you take it to Eurasia, etc. All of us are struggling with this very, very uh, challenging area within the agricultural sector. And 
how it's going to play out, I think, is completely unknown yet. This is one of those areas of gaps of knowledge that we have with respect to what the mega trends globally are pushing us toward. And we need to understand both the agricultural productivity and the use of technology in irrigation, number one. And number two, the political and policy side of that is how do you subsidize these appropriately in the agricultural industry so that yields can continue to be promoted, but with under a sustainable water supply? And this is um, just a big question that I have no answer for at this point. Yeah. So you have, you've made a lot of fantastic points. You've, you've, you've walked us through this global urbanization megatrend. We didn't get to spend a lot of time on the trans transboundary megatrend. And the, you obviously identified as a big, big issue in this megatrend of agricultural production, especially how that is compounded by uh, climate change. I mean, so is, are, are we chicken little here? Is the sky falling or is there any good news that we need to, uh, to, to, to look to, to, to get hope for the situation in the water sector as we uh, go into the future? Yeah, that's a very fair question. And it's an appropriate one day because we, we do tend to focus so much on some of the dire conditions that often seem to be front and center to us. But I do also believe that there is a substantial amount of opportunity for us in the water industry and in the water sector globally to begin to address on both the national and local and regional scales that um, we have opportunity to do. And some of these things have to do with supply, right? So how do we augment water supply. That's critical. And there are a plethora of technological solutions available to us to be able to do that. You know, we all, we often think about, well, water supply can be enhanced by dams and reservoirs. We can look at the coastlines and say there's seawater and brackish water desalinization opportunities. We can do interbasin transfers of water. We've had discussions about that. Dave, you remember back in the days when we talked about moving water out of Lake Michigan um, and these kinds of things. Um, we can do better water reuse and recycling from our wastewater streams. And we're beginning to do a lot more of that now in parts of our country. Um, there's going to have to be green infrastructure at a maximum. We're going to have to really promote the installation of more and more green infrastructure. These are nature-based solutions for the capture of runoff and the treatment of runoff, be able to use that as an augmented supply. The other thing I think that's really available to us that was never before in a big way is the utilization of smart water systems. This is applying digital technology to water and the distribution of water and how it's used in the moderating and curtailing consumptions and demand. I think water harvesting is very, very important. This is actually drawing water out of the humidity from the air. Virtual water trading is an issue and it's an option and it's an opportunity and some of that's already happening in the world. Any of these kinds of things, I think, are very, very appropriate and hopeful uh, opportunities that we should be taking advantage of, particularly in the developed world who has more financial resources to be able to develop these things and make those developments in a way that then we can export those technologies and uses to the areas of the world that are under development. But I would also say that none of this can be the true um, culmination of sustainability if we do not also pay equal attention to the demand that we are putting on water. And so I mean by that, 
we bring these technologies to play, sure, we can do that. And many of these technologies are very appropriate. But until we also recognize that we have to reduce the consumptive demand from each of us individually, right down at the individual level, um, we will struggle consistently with being able to utilize these technologies in a sustainable way. So in other words, I kind of call it the Prius effect, Dave. So if you remember back in the year 2000s and 2002, when they Toyota first brought out the Prius, everybody thought, man, this is fantastic. You know, now I can get 48, 50 miles to the gallon. That did not curtail our reduction in the amount of driving. We just drove more because we could get more out of the same gallon of gas, right? So it sort of was a rebound effect on that attempt to be conservative about how we used energy. And well, and I think the same is true in water. We can put a lot of these technologies in place that help us to have higher efficiencies of water production. But if we don't at the same time reduce our demand, meaning our daily consumption, then it becomes a rebound effect and we only complicate the problem at all. And then when you throw climate change on top of all this, that has no, it, it's taking no, um, uh, it's giving us no, how do you say, uh, way out, right? I mean, it's not going to be very easy on us into the future. So we have to take these very dramatic steps, I think, uh, both from the supply perspective and then also from the demands perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I like your pers- perspective that it's not, it's not a matter of technology. It's really, it's a political question and it's who has the willpower to implement the solution. Um, Indeed it is. And I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, we have, we as human beings have survived many things over the centuries and millennia. And I'm, I'm totally confident that we can do the same here. We just have to do it collaboratively. I think across industries, we can't do this in silos. I think we have to recognize that we are a global village and we've done it before in other sectors and we can do it again. Absolutely. Well, Art, you've been absolutely fantastic. Before we sign off, do you have a leave behind message you, you might like to uh, to leave folks with? It, it sounds like you may have just given one, but I, I'd, I'd like to uh, give you the opportunity. Well, thank you, David, for having this conversation. I think it's a very pertinent one. And I think if, a, if I had one takeaway I would give to us all, is that we have to shift our thinking about water. And what do I mean by that? I think we have to begin to look at all of water sources as one water. So it doesn't matter whether it's storm water or whether it's drinking water or whether it's desalinated seawater or whether it's recycled wastewater, whether it's rainfall, whatever it is that touches water, I believe until we see all that as one entity and we develop our policies about water supply and water consumption under the context of a one water vision, then I believe we are on the road to a fully sustainable future with water because there is only one finite amount of water in this world and it's always going to be that way. And so we just have to work at developing these uh, these current silos into one entity of how we see water. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Art. I, I feel much better having uh, uh, folks like you working on these these difficult to solve problems and the megatrends in the water sector. So it's it's great that you're you're doing this. For those who want to find out more about your work uh, and and what what you're doing, can where where would you send folks? So I would re- encourage anyone to. You can contact me personally, obviously, through my email, and I'm on LinkedIn and all that sort of thing. But, you know, you can also go to our Stantec.com website and 
go to the page for our Stantec Institute for Applied Science, Technology, and Policy, and there you can get more information about the kinds of research work we're doing in this arena. And you can also, uh, through that site, uh, contact specific people who may be doing work in areas of your particular interest. Right. Well, Art, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It was fantastic catching up with you, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Art. Thank you, David. It's really good to hear you as well. Bye now. Well, I love that interview with my old friend, Art. He's just such a great resource for the industry and, of course, incredibly knowledgeable. And I hope you got as much out of that interview as I did. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for information and links on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast. Click the first link that comes up. That is our home on the web uh, on the Bluefield Research website. Again, Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield Research gives us a home on the web. You can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com, and you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page I mentioned earlier as well. Well, thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you make it a great day. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for 2024 include Intera, Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black & Veatch, 120 Water, 1898 & Co., and Woodard and Curran. And this show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.